Good morning, Maple Grove. Good morning, Maple Grove. All right, all right. I need some love. I need some love this morning. Hey, I, I want to start out with a few verses that Jesus, God the Son, spoke on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. It's part of his radical manifesto about what life in his kingdom is all about. The first is Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew 6, a few verses there. Be careful. Someone say be careful. Be careful. Be on guard against practicing your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and the street corners to be honored by others. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and the street corners to be seen by others. When you fast, do not look somber as hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Heavenly Father, we humbly come into your presence this morning recognizing God, that you are the maker of heaven and earth. God, that you breathe out stars, you hold oceans in your hands. God, we know there's no mountain you cannot move, no sea you cannot part, no giant you cannot slay, no life you cannot turn around. God, you open blind eyes, Lord. You cause the lame to walk, and you bring dead things back to life again. And God, I pray that in our time this morning that God will honor you as we lean into your word. God, help me to speak this message in a way that honors you and has an impact on our lives. Holy Spirit, just move in and among us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are willing to respond. Amen. Uh, Jesus said that if we want to be part of his kingdom, that our righteousness must exceed, must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And listen, one way to live that out is to not practice our righteousness, our giving, our praying, and our fasting in order to be seen by others to impress people to, to win their approval. You see, that's how the Pharisees lived. Everything they did was to be seen by other people. It, was, it looked like it was about God, but it was really about them and about them winning the approval of other people. And Jesus said that people who do that, that they are... They're hypocrites, that they're actors, that they're wearing a mask, that they're pretending to be something on the outside that they really are not on the inside. And remember, I, I said last week that in this text in Matthew 6, there's actually two types of hypocrites. And, and, and one, you know, it, it, in the text, it's explicit, right? It's talking about those who perform things to be seen by others, to win their approval, to impress people. They're pretending. And, and the other hypocrite, I think, is implied because Jesus does not say, if you pray, if you give, if you fast. He says, when you pray, when you give, and when you fast. You see, it's not only hypocritical for you and I to live out those activities to be seen, but it's also hypocritical for you and I to claim that we are followers of Jesus, that we're committed disciples, 
and not have these activities in our lives. We're pretending to be something we're not. Because listen, what I'm trying to say is that Jesus followers give, Jesus followers pray, Jesus followers serve, Jesus followers show compassion, Jesus followers share their faith. Amen? Here's the deal. In Matthew 6, Jesus is telling us to embrace the the spiritual discipline of secrecy which help us overcome our approval addiction, right? You know, our need to impress other people, our need to be seen. You know, many people, a lot in this room, especially in the age of social media, are addicted to the approval of other people. We're so concerned about what other people think about us. And the discipline of secrecy will help us overcome that. Now, spiritual discipline is any activity that you can do by direct effort that will help you do what you cannot do by direct effort. Gain the power to live life as Jesus taught and modeled. It's an activity that we can practice that puts us in a place where God can transform us, right? Like I said, I used a sailboat last week, right? You know, a sailboat, the sails are not the wind, right? Spiritual disciplines are like lifting the sails of a sailboat and the wind is God taking us across the shore to where he wants us to be. See, when it comes to growing in our faith, just like playing the guitar, it's not about trying harder, it's about training wisely. Last week I showed you my great guitar skills, and some of you are like, he's got it upside down. That's because when I played air guitar, I always watched TV, and I did it this way. I don't care if it's upside down, because it doesn't really matter. didn't work. I tried harder than last week. You see, it's not about trying harder. It's about training wisely. It's not about simply wanting to be a better Jesus follower. It's about taking these disciplines and putting them into our lives. And many times we cannot see the connection that our training has with our ultimate goal, right? And I showed you this picture from a great movie from the I think 1980s, right? Mr. Miyagi, Daniel-san, right? And, and his goal was to go to the All-Valley Tournament. And he's training with Mr. Miyagi. And Mr. Miyagi's having, he has some nice looking cars. You know, washing his car, sanding the floor, painting the fence. And he could not understand, how is this helping me? We found out that, you know, wax on, wax off. And so even if you cannot see the connection, how in the world is practicing, praying, and giving and fasting in secret going to help me overcome my approval addiction. Wax on, wax off. It's not about trying harder. It's about training wisely. Amen? Yeah. I mentioned some books last week. Um, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. The Path to Spiritual Growth. Great book. And then the book by John Ortberg, The Life You've Always Wanted. Several books about spiritual disciplines. Today we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of fasting. Not fasting to lose weight or to detox your body, but going without food for a specific amount of time for a spiritual purpose. If you were last week, you know that I, I intended on talking about uh, fasting last week. 
However, during my sermon, I decided to delay that discussion for two reasons. Number one, because I was looking at the clock and realized I only had six minutes left on my time, which I ignore anyhow, but I only had six minutes left. And I, I figured, you know what, I've already given us enough to chew on and talking about the practice of giving in secret and the practice of uh, praying in secret. And, and uh, another reason was because that was the reasons. <laughs> no, it's not. Kind of. If you're visiting, hey, I am what I am, right, Popeye? Um, but the other reason was, you know, I, I couldn't do justice to this topic. And, uh, it, and what it, delay allowed me to do, to spend more time diving into this discipline, which I really did. Another advantage was it made last week's sermon shorter than normal, which is always a win, right? I mean, don't get too comfortable. My wife was proud of me. It doesn't happen very often, but she was very proud of me. And, and so I'm excited about this today, and, and I really think that for some in this room, this discipline and, and put in your life is going to make an extreme difference. And uh, a few questions as we begin. You don't need to raise your hands. Um, do you give on a regular basis? Is praying part of your spiritual journey on a regular basis? Do you fast on a regular basis for a spiritual purpose? How many sermons or lessons have you ever heard that were solely dedicated to the topic of fasting? Uh, Check out what Richard Foster wrote in his book, Celebration of Discipline. He writes, In a culture where nearly every street corner is dotted with shrines to the golden arches, an assortment of pizza temples, fasting seems out of place and out of set with the times. In fact, fasting has been in general fasting has been in general disrepute both in and outside the church for many years. He writes, for example, in my research, I cannot find a single book published on the subject of Christian fasting from 1861 to 1954, a period of nearly 100 years. More recently, a renewed interest in fasting has developed, but we have far to go to recover a biblical balance. And and I I think part of the problem is only because we've been convinced that if we, you know, that we don't have three meals a day with snacks in between that we're on the verge of starvation, but also that food itself has become an idol. Uh, We don't just like food, we love food. As one writer said, we are a people of stuffed lips and we live among a people of stuffed lips. Mark Buchanan, in his book, Your God is Too Safe, writes this about our unhealthy unhealthy appetite for food. Our preoccupation with food has entered the realm of absurd. For example, look at any magazine, page after page of succulent, sauce-lading, sparkling, glistening food. It's kind of a culinary pornography. McDonald's, Golden Arches, and Coca-Cola's logo are likely more widely recognized symbols and more accepted than the cross of Christ, end quote. Understand, our obsession with food and the lack of teaching on this topic has made fasting something that most believers think is pretty irrelevant. Most think that fasting is just something for religious fanatics, for monks with weird haircuts, what's that about, who live in monasteries, or for a preacher here and there. However, fasting for the average Christian is not really that important and does not need to be a part of our spiritual journey. Again, is biblical fasting part of your spiritual journey? And listen, the Bible has a lot to say about fasting. 
And that is why it makes sense for us to dig into this topic. I mean, the list of people in the Bible who participate in fasting is like a who's who's list of scripture. You have Moses, the lawgiver, David, the king and giant slayer, Elijah, the prophet, Esther, the queen, Nehemiah, the uh, wall builder, Daniel, the prophet and lion tamer, Anna, the prophetess, Paul, the apostle, and Jesus Christ, the son of God, to name a few. And here's how I want to attack our conversation today by unpacking the following statements. Listen, that's what we do at the Grove. We unpack every Sunday, right? We're unpacking every single Sunday. Amen? Amen? (laughs) Okay, here are those statements we're going to unpack today. Fasting in the Bible, what Jesus said about fasting, classifying the fasting we see in the Bible. Fasting is not about, and then 10 reasons to fast. Again, there's numerous examples of the Bible of people fasting. The first is when Moses went up to the top of thundering Mount Sinai to receive from God the Ten Commandments, Exodus 34, verse 28. In Judges chapter 20, the Israelites were camped at Bethel and they sat there weeping because they faced a very tough, painful, and difficult decision. Ever been there? You see, because of the great sin of one of the tribes, Benjamin, it looked like they may have to go to war against one of their own brothers. And they looked to God for advice, and God gave them direction. When the prophet Elijah hit a spiritual wall, when he was what we call today burned out and depressed, when he could just, he couldn't go more or do more, he went to the desert and waited for the still small voice of God. 1 Kings 19. And Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, a huge army has surrounded and a to attack Jerusalem. The people are afraid, they're terrified, they're outgunned, they're outnumbered. And so King Jehoshaphat proclaimed the fast for the entire nation. And the nation came together and they fasted and God responded. And if you want to find out what happened, I'm not going to tell you. You can check it out in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. In the book of Esther, a, a wicked man by the name of Haman had, had, had woven a plan where he could kill his enemy, every last Jew alive in Persia. And Queen Esther, before she went before the king uninvited to plead for her people, she called on all the Jews in Persia to pray and fast. And and Ezra chapter 8, Ezra's returning with exiles back to Jerusalem through hostile territory, and he prays and fasts that God would give them protection. In Ezra chapter 10, we see Ezra fasting over the unfaithfulness of those exiles who had returned. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are about to go on their first missionary journey, but before the church sent them out, they worshiped, prayed, and fasted. Jonathan fasted when he was troubled by the hatred his, his, his dad had of David, 1 Samuel 20, 34. Now, David fasted when the great warrior Abner died, and he fasted when his son was sick, 2 Samuel 12, 16. Ahab fasted as a sign of repentance and humility before the Lord, 1 Kings 21, 27. The nation of Nineveh fasted at the preaching of Jonah, Jonah 3, 4 through 10. Nehemiah fasted when he heard about how all the walls were torn down, Nehemiah 1, verse 4. The entire nation of Israel fasted on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 20. Anna fasted as an act of worship, Luke 2, 37. Paul fasted after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, 9. Barnabas fasted when faced with the task of appointing church leaders, Acts 14, verse 23. Jesus fasted before he began his ministry, Matthew chapter 4. Understand, fasting was a common practice throughout all of Scripture. 
It was also a common practice for the church that we read about in the writings of the early church fathers. A guy, a guy named Polycarp, who was a protege of the Apostle John. Check out what he wrote in the first century. I think I have it here. Wherefore, let us forsake the vain doing of the many and their false teachings, and turn unto the word which was delivered unto us from the beginning, being sober unto prayer and constant in fastings, entreating the all-seeing God with supplication that he bring us not into temptation. According as the Lord said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. End quote. You know, it, it's crazy and kind of sad that something we see so frequently in Scripture and in church history plays such a minor, if any, role whatsoever in the life of Jesus' followers today. Now, the problem isn't new. John Wesley in the, in the uh, 18th century wrote this. Some have exalted fasting beyond all Scripture and reason. And others have utterly disregarded it. And I got to admit that I kind of fall into the second category. I think in 31 years of ministry, I've done a full sermon on fasting, I think, twice. When I was doing a series on spiritual disciplines. And I don't think any of those times were here. I can tell you, that's what I love about our verse-by-verse -verse study through the Gospel of Matthew, right? It forces you, or rather gives you the opportunity to talk about things that maybe you don't usually talk about. Like several weeks back when, you know, I was forced with the opportunity to really dig into the subject of divorce like I had never dug into before. And so I'm glad we're doing this, and I'm glad that, that I'm here today talking about fasting. And I, I really do believe, I'm not making this up, and I, and I pray that you know, I, I no way get in the way what God wants to say today, that if you put this in your life, it will make a serious difference. What did Jesus say about fasting? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. He says, when you fast, someone say, when you fast. When you fast. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they receive the reward in full. But when you fast, someone say, but when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, comb your hair, floss your teeth, so it may not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your father who's unseen, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, Jesus just assumes that those who follow him, that those in his kingdom would make fasting a regular practice in their lives, just as he assumes that they will make giving and praying a regular part of their lives. It's just what we do. Now, another passage where Jesus talks about fasting is in Matthew chapter 9. We read these words beginning in verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the Pharisees, we think that maybe they fasted twice a week uh, according to some you know, ancient document called the Dedicate. It, it's like a Christian handbook in the first century. It, it says that they fasted on Tuesday, on Thursday. And what I read this week, I didn't live back then, but, you know, that, that was like the market day, Tuesday and Thursday. So what better day to look somber 
When you're walking down the street, and people are like, oh, look at him, man. Oh, but what? he must be fasting, you know. He must be a very spiritual person, right? And they're saying, hey, we're fasting, Jesus, but why don't your disciples fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. Jesus said that, hey, while I'm walking the earth, when I'm with my disciples, it's not a time to fast. It is a time to feast. But later, when the bridegroom is taken away, when he goes to prepare a place for them, and until he returns, there will be times when it's very appropriate for his people to practice fasting in order to pursue God and pursue godliness. Get it? Good. However, on the day the bridegroom comes and makes all things new, there's no longer any reason to fast. Yes, when the sky splits open and our king returns and the church is once again with their bridegroom in his presence, it'll be a time of feasting and feasting forever. But again, Jesus assumes that until he returns, those who follow him and live in his kingdom will fast. And we'll also feast, right? <laughs> See, we don't just fast as Christians. We feast. We feast on his finished work on the cross. We feast on his mercy. We feast on his grace. We feast on this relationship we can now have with God. We feast that his spirit now lives in us. We feast that we have a living hope and joy that is inexpressible. We both fast and feast as Jesus' followers. Now, the next point in your notes and. It's classifying the fasting we see in the Bible. And that's, I probably spent 20 minutes trying to figure out, how can I word this thing? And that's the best I could come up with, right? You know, and in the Bible, we see different types of fast. Uh, there's a normal fast. It's where you abstain from food, but not from water. Some examples are Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, 34, Daniel in 2 Samuel 3, 35, and Jesus in Mark chapter 4. And at this point, I just want to point out, um, <clears throat> every week, you know, I put together a very detailed outline. And this week, it's really important. Maybe you should have picked one up on the way out. Like, all these scripture references are there. And this is here for you to take notes and go back, hey, you know what, Steve, that's not what that scripture says. You know, see, these are very detailed. Especially you want to see, here's examples of these types of fasting. You can pick one of these up. And I also have on that back table, you know, um, some tips for fasting, right? You know, preparing for a fast, during a fast, and when you're ending your fast. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't picked one up, I have the, I have the uh, uh, preparations and tips for fasting on those two kiosks, and I have these outlines. But every week I put these together. I even hole punch them, right? Oh, I see you there, right? I even hole punch some things, right? But anyhow, they're there for your help so you can see these scriptures, all right? So we have the normal fast, and we have an absolute fast. That's when you, you abstain from both food and water. And the scripture, an absolute fast, was primarily for spiritual emergencies. Moses received the Ten Commandments. Elijah battling depression and the evil queen Jezebel. The Ninevites repenting at the preaching of Jonah. The exiles in Persia praying against a genocide that was soon coming. And Saul, after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, all practiced an absolute fast where they gave up both food and water. Then you have what's called maybe a partial fast. It's where you abstain from certain foods, generally rich foods, and live on a simple diet. Classically, it means cutting out meats, fish, poultry, dairy products, and desserts. 
It could describe any partial fast. Example would be Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3. And again, I have those references there, so I feel okay just rattling this stuff off, right? Because um, I got the references for you there. And a partial fast is a good thing to consider if you have a health reason where you can't give up food completely. You may give up something else, okay? We also see different fasting lengths in the Bible. Okay, uh, a one-day fast, and this was usually from sun up to sun down. I got scripture references for you. You can look up on our notes. A three-day fast, we see Esther did this, Saul did this. There's a seven-day fast in the Bible. Uh, that's when the people of Jabesh Gilead were mourning because the Philistines not only killed King Saul, but they desecrated his body. And, and these people loved Saul, King Saul, because he had delivered them, okay? And so they fasted for seven days. Uh, Daniel did a 21-day fast in Daniel chapter 10.3. Uh, it was a partial fast. And we have 40-day fast, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And here's the deal. The length and type of fast is really up to you. And to what you think God is leading you to do. But, but here's the bottom line. The practice, this spiritual discipline is about giving up food for a certain period of time in order to pray and seek God's presence, power, person, purposes, and help. Get it? Good. And next thing you notice, I'll talk about participants in the fast. In the Bible, we see, we see individual fast and we see corporate fast. By my count... Of the feast we read in the, New in the Bible, there are 31 individual fasts, individual people fasting, and there are 21 times where there was a corporate fast, where a group of people or an entire nation fasted for a specific purpose. And see, there, there, there are really times when it's good for a group of people to come together to pray and fast and seek the face and help of God. In fact, there are times when our country actually did this. As the Revolutionary War was approaching, the Continental Congress on July 20th, 1775, called for a day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Three of our first four presidents called for national days of prayer. George Washington, John Adams, James Madison, I left out who? Good old TJ, right? Uh, TJ, Thomas Jefferson thought, no, this is only an individual thing. And then the next 11 presidents never called for a national fast until Abraham Lincoln, on March 20th, 1863, called for a fast. In the midst of the Civil War, where hundreds of thousands of men had died, families that had been so severely affected by the war. And I just, I can't help myself. I got to read some of what he wrote in that proclamation. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of, bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness, 
Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I hereby request all people to abstain on that day from the ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devote it to the humble discharge of religious duties proper to the solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings, no less than the pardoning of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. Wow. I sure wish we had leaders that would do that today. You know, we've, we've gotten too big for our britches. And we're too proud to call on the God that have made us. The next phase, fasting is not about, it's not about being seen by others. Right, the, the Pharisees fasted to be seen. They intensely didn't shave, didn't shower, didn't comb their hair. I mean, they would wake up with a serious case of a bedhead and look like they were drugged behind a mule for 17 and a half miles. So people would see them, oh, there is a spiritual person. So Jesus says, look, I know you're going to fast because that's what people in my kingdom do. But when you do, don't grandstand. When you do, don't draw attention to yourself. When you do, don't, don't try to impress people with your spirituality. And I think it's important to point out that Jesus did not say that if someone finds out you're fasting, that your fasting is somehow invalid. It's kind of crazy. Some people have turned Jesus' teaching on the practice of fasting and secrecy into some superstition on par with blowing out your birthday candles, right? You know, you have birthday candles on cake and you blow out the candles and if you make a wish and no one finds out about it, then your wish comes true, right? Well, if I fast and no one finds out about it, then my fast is valid. No. Yeah. Do your best not to let other people know. But if they find out, it does not nullify your fast. Fasting is not about strong-arming God. It's not a hunger strike to get what you want. You're not the fast thinking that if I fast, then God is obligated to do what I want him to do. What I, to do what I want him to do. I want this thing, I want to see this happen in my life, and if I fast, then God is obligated to give me what I want. Fasting is not a means to control and manipulate the maker of heaven and earth. The one who speaks out stars and holds the earth in its orbit right now, right? That's not what fasting is about. You're not strong-arming God. You're not backing God into a corner where he has to do what you want. Nevertheless, sometimes God's people do that, like in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58. They're fasting the strong arm of God. And we read this, beginning at verse 1. Shout with the voice of triumph blast. Tell my people, Israel, their sins, yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to hear my laws. You'd almost think this was a righteous nation that would never abandon God. They love to make a show of coming to me and asking me to take action on their behalf. We fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We've done much penance and you don't even notice it. I'll tell you why. It's because you're living for yourself even while you're fasting. You keep right on oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. 
You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like a blade of grass in the wind. You dress in sackcloth and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? Here's the, you don't, we're not fasting the strong arm God to get what we want. And if that's your goal, you might as well go out to eat at all you can eat buffet, right? If that's why you're fasting, to get God to do what you want, just go out to uh, Wood Grill, right? Fasting is not about earning God's forgiveness. And this is so important. Fasting is not a payment for or punishment of our sin. Fasting does not make you more right with God. You see, when it comes to sorrow for our sins, God is not looking for an outward act. He's looking for a condition of our heart. That's what David said in Psalm 51 about his sin with Bathsheba. He said, you would not be pleased with sacrifices or I would bring them. If I brought you a burnt offering, you would not accept it. The sacrifices you want is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Next, fasting is not about simply not eating. And sure, the word for fast is the Greek word nestuo, ne, which means not, estuo, means which means eat, not eat. That's what the word literally means. But listen, if there's no spiritual purpose in your fasting, if prayer and reading the Bible and seeking God's face are not a part of it, you're better off ordering pizza or eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's. A biblical fast is not a diet plan. And yet there are some incredible physical benefits with fasting. Weight loss, decreased blood pressure, decreased inflammation, decreases your cholesterol, increases your brain function, you sleep better, you reduce cancer risk, you reduce risk of diabetes, it allows your body to detox, it allows your kidney and liver to get a break, and more. Those are just secondary blessings that God gives us, but they are not to be your goal in fasting. Okay, here's some reason to fast. Number one, when you want to recapture your hunger for God. See, I believe that most of us in this room have a desire to be more intimate with God, more devoted to God, but something gets in the way of that devotion and that hunger. One guy I read this week wrote this. The greatest enemy of our hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video and the primetime dribble. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not from the poison of evil, but from the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. He goes on. Jesus said some people hear the word of God and that desire is awakened in their hearts, but then as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Luke 8, verse 14. Another place he said the desires of other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The pleasures of life and the desires of other things These are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts from God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. All of them can become deadly substitutes for God. 
You see, a great and deadly danger, especially for us who live in the first world, is that we keep stuffing ourselves with other things. See, it's not feasting with the wicked that robs us of our hunger of God. It's nibbling at the table of the world. And we have no appetite left for God. Does that ever happen to you at Thanksgiving? Big meals at 4 o'clock. And you're, you got all these snack trays. And all day long, you're hitting those snack trays. Boom, boom, watching football. And the big meal comes, and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> I'm not as hungry as I thought I was. I guess I'll just take turkey and, I, and ham, too, and I, I, I won't have it. And, and see, what happens is God blesses us, and we enjoy those blessings so much. We're like, you know, I'm kind of not hungry. God, thank you for all these blessings you've given me and all these good things have just filled me up. I feel pretty content. I'll just take a small serving of God right now. See, fasting is that discipline which tries to recapture our hunger for God. It says to God, I'm willing to forgo anything in order to be in your presence. Fasting, another reason fasting is you desire to expose your heart. See, it brings to the surface that which is deep down, the things that we hide from ourselves with large doses of McDonald's, French fries, chocolate, and frappuccinos. See, fasting helps us uncover what's really there. For example, if you're one who eats in order to feel better or to forget, then the absence of food will make that clear. Mark Buchanan writes, again, I love this, fasting churns the stuff up from the depths. Is there anger in me? I can usually control that with the burger and fries. Am I resentful, irritated, overly ambitious, fearful? I can smother that with pizza. Am I depressed or embittered, suffering from a sense of life's unfairness? I can artificially perk myself up with a Mars ball, Mars bar, end quote. You know, I think we all at times use food to deal with life. Like if you're having a terrible day, the one thing that might get you going is, I have a great lunch coming at 12 o'clock. But then you realize, wait a second, I'm fasting today. I have to find another way to deal with my feelings, another way to deal with the things that are in my heart. A guy named Piper writes this of fasting. Humbly and quietly, with scarcely a movement, she, fasting, brings up out of the dark places of my soul. The dissatisfaction in relationships, the frustrations of ministry, the fears of failure, the emptiness of wasted time. And just when my heart begins to retreat to the delicious hope of eating supper at Pizza Hut, she quietly reminds me, not tonight. Understand, hunger strips away the disguise and forces out the real issue. Another reason to fast is sorrow over sin. Again, we don't fast as punishment or payment for sin. But fasting because we're sorry for sin is not a bad idea. When Jonah finally got around to preaching in Nineveh and they repented, we read they declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth as a sign of the repentance. See, fasting can be a means of wearing sackcloth. It's a way to enter the mourning over the sins you committed against God Sins that required him to send Jesus in the first place. Fasting provides an opportunity for repentance. Putting off the old self and putting on the new. 
A fourth reason to fast is to remind yourself of your dependency of God. Remind yourself of your dependency on God. And we really need this in our country because we pride ourselves on independence, right? Like we don't need anyone to take care of us. We got our job, we got our insurance, we got our 401ks, and all that fails, we got our government, right? Fast is meant to humble us, to make us understand how weak and small and frail and hopeless and finite we are. Faith opens up our eyes, as one writer says, to our own stark naked neediness and our daily dependence. I mean, it only takes a few hours, right, for us to realize how weak we are. Oh my gosh, I'm hungry. I'm starving. I'm starving. I really need some food, right? We can't make it very long at all. Understand, unless God in his mercy provides manna for this day, we're in trouble. What I'm trying to say is, Unless God keeps the sun shining, the rain raining, the farmers farming, and the earth spinning, we will have nothing to eat. And what I'm trying to say is that our, that our affluence and our prosperity and God's faithfulness to us has blinded us to the fact that we need him. Give us this day our daily bread. We become, as my mom used to tell me, Stevie, you're getting too big for your britches. And we're too big for our britches. We don't think we need God. And fasting humbles us. And humility for God is a good thing. Humble yourself for the Lord, he'll lift you up. God opposes the problem, gives grace to the humble. The fifth reason is improve the self-discipline in your life. Like a city without walls is a man who lacks self-control. Like a city without walls is a man who lacks self-control. Do you lack any self-control in some areas of your life? Food, lust, anger, your tongue, your temper? Do you agree with the Bible that many times it is your inability to control your flesh that gets you into trouble? Understand, Many times your flesh is willing to sin and your spirit is too weak to say, stop. Fasting is an opportunity to tell your body, hey, you're not in control. I think that's what Paul meant when he said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, like an athlete, I punish my body, treating it roughly, training it to do what it should, not what it wants to do. Hey, you're not in control. God's in control. A sixth reason to fast, and we're almost done. The last four I'm just going to mention, so don't get worried. I've already timed out, but that's all right. To me. And to you. My wife is giggling over there. Sixth reason to fast is when you need a spiritual breakthrough. Question. Is there a sin in your life that you cannot shake loose of? Is there an attitude that you cannot let go? Is there a negative depression funk that you can't get rid of? Is there some kind of spiritual wall that you cannot break through? Uh, like God's people in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, has a spiritual enemy surrounded you and you're terrified and afraid and everything seems absolutely hopeless? Understand, many times, fasting can bring about a breakthrough. 
Again, you are not strong arming God to get what you want. But the truth is, some breakthroughs only come about through prayer and fasting. Don't believe me? Ask Esther. Ask Nehemiah. Ask Ezra. Ask Elijah. Like, if you need a breakthrough and you're struggling, maybe what God is saying, hey, you need to practice the discipline of fasting. Reason to fast, just listing these. When a loved one is sick, like David did with his son. When you need some direction from God, like Nehemiah, when he didn't know what to do, when he heard about how bad things were for his hometown in Jerusalem. When you're about to start a new ministry for the Lord, like Jesus, Paul, and Barnabas. When you long to see God's power move among his people and his church. The practice of fasting. What a gift. When it's done in secret, it can help you overcome your approval addiction. But it also has the power to help ordinary people encounter the living God and to grow more into his likeness. Father God, we humbly come before you and Holy Spirit, I just ask for your help right now. (laughs) God, when we see the great people of faith fasting throughout Scripture, Lord, and I know it's something you want us to do, God, and I pray somehow, Lord, you can take all these words I just threw out here, God. Holy Spirit, I trust you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. God, I pray that they will take time to pray and think about if you're calling them to practice the spiritual discipline of fasting. Actually, you are calling them. You're assuming they will. And God, I pray for those who maybe... This may be what's missing. This may be what you want them to do to get a fresh look at you, to get that breakthrough that they're needing, God, to to recapture that hunger, Lord, to recapture that they are totally dependent on you, God, to expose what's ruling their heart that they cover up with food and other things, God. And God, I I thank you for this time, and I I pray as we sing this song, God, I, I thank you that you're a God who is able to place our brokenness aside and make us into something beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen.